Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey everyone! In today's flashback episode, I'm joined by one of the funniest people on the planet. Here's Amy Schumer. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Are you in New York, Amy? Yeah, are you? No, we're in Los Angeles. We have three children on online learning right now. So it's like, I don't know. Like just super easy and like peaceful? Yeah. You should see the kitchen. Oh, yeah. Just wait till you see the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we just had no childcare for three days. So that was really fun. And our marriage is at a really good place. <laughs> we're at an all-time high. Gene is a year and two months? Three months? Yeah. He's a year and a half. His birthday's May 5th. I don't know how many months he is. That's the kind of mother I am. Me too. Okay. <laughs> you know what's sad? I put makeup on. Me too. You know, like I put makeup on, I blow dried my hair, but now I'm looking at myself and, you know, whenever I get photographed, they write like, no makeup. And I'm always like, I was wearing a lot of makeup. Um, So I don't know where it went, but I just want you to know I respect this show and I love you. I love you, Amy. I love you. I just need to say you have been such a huge part of my inspiration. Just how funny. And from the second you were in films, I was like, wow, like that just opened my mind to a whole other level, like of how funny women can be. Thank you. That's really the truth. I just, oh my God. I just think that you're so funny and I just have to get that out of the way. Oh God, I said too much too fast. Thank you, Amy. No, 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 no. No, no, I'm going in. I'm going in. I feel unsafe. You intimidate me. No, no. No, no, no. I mean that as a very high compliment because I admire you so much. So nice. No, please don't be intimidated. This is a long time coming. I just feel like you and I are destined for friendship. I would love that. Yeah. I also regret wearing this shirt. I just have to say, because I'm all one color. Yeah, I'm looking at my hair, which might need to be colored soon. My fiance's a DP. Oh. But he also does my hair. He's been bleaching my hair during quarantine. Oh, okay. That's the ultimate. It looks really good. Thanks. We've been using like the L'Oreal kits. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, Amy, we finished expecting Amy. My fiance and I looked at each other and we were like, maybe we should do this. We should have a baby together. Oh, good. Of course, you didn't make the pregnancy itself seem quite as appealing. I was really nervous about putting this out because I was scared that it would discourage people from getting pregnant or especially for the first time because the possibility like that you could get that sick. I was honestly scared that I was going to affect the population in the other way. So I'm happy to hear you say that, really. <laughs> you know, oh God, I mean, the journey that you fucking went through. So when I had Jack, yeah. I w was a geriatric mom because I was 35. Mm -hmm. It was my first pregnancy. Things were great. I felt great. I wasn't sick. I felt bored. Right. And like, you know, sleepy and a little rain fog. But that was nice. I could handle that. But then he came at 21 weeks. No, 31 weeks. I didn't know that. Oh my God. Oh my, oh my God. <laughs> he came out with no limbs. I'm like. Yeah. <laughs> no, I gave birth to a three pound baby. So. Oh, 
Oh. Yeah, he came at 31 weeks. Like, my water broke in the middle of the night. I was naive enough to think, like, I smelled, like, the wetness. I was hoping that it was pee. As we all do. Yeah. Yeah. And we called the doctor at, like, 3 in the morning, and she was like, you need to go to the hospital right now in a very calm voice. And I was so confused. I was like, okay. And in my head, I thought, well, maybe they'll just put some more fluid in me. Right. And kind of stitch me up and send me home. Yeah. And, you know, when I got there, they were like, no, you're staying here until this baby comes out. And so I was on bed rest for a week. And then they wanted me to be on bed rest for as long as I could so the baby could, you know, incubate. But then when I had the baby, I did eventually get an epidural. But I remember thinking, do not forget this pain because you will forget it. And then you're probably going to want to do it again or something (laughs) stupid like that. Right, right. You went through IVF. Yeah. Are those memories sharp? So you're totally right. No, everyone says you're going to get amnesia. And they laughed at me the whole time because I was like, I will never be pregnant again. This is such a nightmare. And everyone's like, I'll see you for your next baby. And I'm like, (sighs) you're high. This is it. And then absolutely have full amnesia. Thank God I have that documentary. Because other than that, you just go like, oh, they're so joyful. Like, I, I want another one. So, you know, I had Jean when I was 37. And so, yeah, they're just like, here's your walker and like your dentures because you're an elderly woman having a baby. And you're like, thank you. You know, so we went through IVF because I was like, we're considering surrogacy because you're like, oh, I want him to have a sibling. And uh." And so IVF was equally, well, not equally awful for me, but my body really reacted poorly to IVF. But we got a couple embryos. So we don't know. You know, with the pandemic, we're like, everything's kind of just on hold. Amy, can I have one? You can have an embryo. No, I don't have like a million embryos. Like we have one normal one and then we have two mosaics. I'll have a mosaic. You'll take a mosaic? (laughs) Okay, great. Perfect. So I'll just invoice you for like a mosaic. So, oh, I have to pay for it. It's honestly nothing. It's two million dollars. And then you'll just have Chris and my child. Is that okay? Yeah, I might have to get on to another long running sitcom. That's fine. That's fine. You're going to book it. No, but I, for my safety, cannot be pregnant again. One in three mothers with hyperemesis, what I had, one in three babies don't make it. So I really don't like those odds. Yeah, like just because you're vomiting so much, you can't nourish the baby or yourself. So my pregnancy was a huge bummer. My doctor told me that if I got pregnant again, that I would most likely have to be on bed rest the whole time. What did you do the week you were on bed rest? Like, what do you do? You watch TV? You just sleep? Yeah. And I couldn't shower. I was able to go to the bathroom, but that was it. I was nervous, but everyone was so great. And I was still in a very much of a foggy, surreal state, which is kind of how I felt the whole pregnancy. Yeah, it's an out-of-body thing. Yeah. And I was about to say I've never been a nurturer, but I don't think that's quite accurate. (laughs) I live a selfish life, I think. (laughs) As performers, you got to take care of yourself to do your thing. I don't know if I take care of myself. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I also don't nurture myself. Thank you. (laughs) Were you happy that you were having a boy? No. I just thought I'm definitely having a girl. Really? Oh, yeah. No question. I was like, I'm having a girl. And like, that's going to be really hard because life's hard for a woman. But and when I found out it was a boy, I was like really surprised. And like, I kind of pretended like I was happy, but it was not during the height of the Me Too movement. But my eyes were set on we have to break down the patriarchy and this white male dominated world. And then my mind went right there like, oh, my God, I'm bringing another white man into this awful world. But then I kind of felt relieved that I was having a boy because it's just harder for women and hardest for marginalized people. But then, uh, you know, once I met him, I just could not be more in love with him. How about you? Were you excited? I was thrilled and I felt like I was having a boy. 
I've talked about this on the podcast before, Amy. I have an awkwardness with women. I don't know if it's because I don't have a sister and I grew up a pretty quiet, lonely kid. And so female relationships sometimes feel very elusive to me. Ooh, interesting. I have like maybe two really good girlfriends. Right. But it's hard for me just in general to cultivate female friendships sometimes. Interesting. I wish it felt easier to me. And I get much more nervous on the podcast talking to women. It helps to admit that at 44. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't have a lot of close friends. Like I have two people I consider my best friends, two girlfriends. And then I'm friends with five of the girls that I grew up with. They're all moms now. We text and we joke, but that's it. You know, I don't think, sorry, my nose is running. Amy does cocaine, but I've never have, I've never done cocaine, but I want to do it today on the podcast. Good. (laughs) But that's interesting. What were your friendships like when you were like I'm really interested in this. Like I'm making a scripted show about it. Just like what happens when you're like 12, like around that age. I feel like it sets up your DNA. For me anyway, it did. Like, were there some things? Were you like a really pretty kid? No. No? So it wasn't like girls were mean to you because they were jealous kind of thing? No, not at all. No. So what were those like early friendships like? Very intense, almost like love. Mm. And there would be one person. And then if that person found another friend, I was heartbroken. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like I really related to Anna Green Gables (laughs) and her love for Diana. (laughs) Yeah. It left me feeling very vulnerable, I guess. Yeah. Around that age, if there's a trio of friendship, I felt like I was kind of the one that usually got booted right in a cruel manner. Oh, yeah. That's a dynamic I feel like we all know. And like even my friend's daughter, who's that age, like her friends just booted her. And I'm like, oh, I remember getting the boot. It's just, (sighs) and it's like, it's nothing. But at the time, it just feels like the world is ending. Yeah, there's so much to navigate. And we're white. (laughs) I know. You know, it's like for us growing up felt almost impossible. My best friend, this like unicorn (laughs) of a girl. Yeah. And cool. And but she had a wild imagination, which I loved about her. Mm. And she wrote, fuck you, bitch, on my locker one day. I know. I was like, I didn't know what to do. Yeah, that's a life changer. There's no way that that can't affect you. There's just no way. So it's like you really feel like you can't trust people. I mean, there's like a lot of reasons that you probably can't trust people. Also, you're famous. So you've been famous for like, what, 15 years. And then that comes with a different level of like, what does this person want? So I think your sort of like trust issues and your vulnerability are earned. They sound pretty earned, but you should still try to shake them. (laughs) But it's hard to make friends when you're older. It's just like, it has to be somebody that you really want to connect with, which is why I think we should become really good friends. I would love that. I think you could help. Okay, it's done. It's done. And also, like, I've been listening to this other, not to bring up another podcast on your podcast, but this podcast called Poo. Mm -hmm. Do you know Jacqueline Novak and Kate Berlant? They are so funny. Yes, I do. Yeah. You do, right? Jacqueline Novak had that show Get On Your Knees, and Kate Berlant does a lot of stuff with John Early. I love John Early. What's it called again, Amy? Goop Backwards. It's Poog. Poog. That's hysterical. It's really fun. Okay. And it's like, you'll listen to it and you'll be like, I want to be friends with these girls and I feel like I already am. I'm going to check that out. Yeah. Can I ask you a whole series of questions? Do it. Anything. All right. We'll start out a little bit easy. In your special, what happened with the lamb heart? Oh, was there a lamb heart on the counter? There was a brief shot of a lamb heart. And Chris says that you were not supposed to see that. Right. And I really like to cook. I'm very much an amateur. Uh Uh-huh. I'm very curious. Yeah. I like the idea of using an entire animal if you're going to eat it. Yes. 
Yes. But however, I don't know what you would do or where you would purchase a lamb heart. What you would do with a heart. I don't know what happened with that specific heart, but he does sometimes cook, I think, beef hearts and and we'll eat it and it's good. Will you get back to our listeners regarding the lamb heart? (laughs) Yes, I will. I will get back as soon as possible. I'll send my team. But Chris, you know, he always has something like upsetting looking in the kitchen. He has a totally different relationship to food and farming and processing animals than I will ever understand. But it does seem like a very humane way that they do it. And then, yeah, truly using the whole animal. I completely support that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I want to ask you these broad questions, like things like how has motherhood changed you or the quarantine experiences? It's great. (laughs) Just want to tell you the plan, Amy. Walk me through the plan. I'm ready. Okay, let me start out with actually stand up, if you don't mind. Let's do it. What three descriptive adjectives could you use to kind of lump all stand up comedians together? That's a definite valid question. I think you could probably answer it just as well as I could. I would say tormented, insecure, and controlling. (laughs) That's not a very flattering thing. But I do think that all the stand ups I know, except for Jerry Seinfeld, they all had a really hard time growing up and, you know, learned through making people laugh that they could kind of help people feel better and help themselves feel better. That's really every stand-up I know. What about you? What do you think? Well, I've never done stand-up. I mean, Amy... But you know stand-ups, you know, like... I do, and Mm -hmm. I love them. Stand-ups, although I don't perceive you to be this way, when they're on the podcast, I think they're the most entertaining guests, but they can be very distant. They're afraid of being vulnerable because they want to control everything, which I think is a reason that a lot of people get into stand-up. And I think it's a really limiting way as an artist to work. I think hopefully you are evolving toward vulnerability and your own evolution. That's what I think, because I don't want to see a stand-up do the same thing for 20 years. I want them to evolve as an artist, and I want to go along for the ride with them. Like Amy, not to put you on the spot with this, but how would you describe your evolution? Well, I started when I was like 23 or something like that. So I'm just trying to make people laugh and figuring it out. And, you know, I always talk about this book by Isabel Wilkerson, this book Cast. And it just talks about how we really don't learn our history in this country. Who is it by? Isabel Wilkerson. Isabel. Yeah, it's called Cast. Cast with an E at the end. And it points out that we're living in like a silent caste system where really white people are the dominant caste and really everyone else is treated as a subordinate caste. And even though people are like, I'm not racist, I'm not racist. You don't have to be racist to be raised in a society that thinks white people are superior to black people. And that is how I feel like I grew up. I had black friends. You know, I loved growing up in New York, being around a diverse group of people. But there was that feeling. That's something that I've had to educate myself and undo. And I think a lot of us don't even know that the system's right under our noses. So as a comedian, you know, I'm starting out and I would say a joke like I don't know what the punchline was, but the joke was something about how black people can't swim. And I played like a character in my stand up, like who would say really dumb, like kind of racist, like irreverent things. And then it's like, well, the jokes about black people can't swim. It's like, well, that's because they weren't allowed in pools. And a boy in, I think, Michigan, like, because, you know, they used to separate. Here's where the black people can swim. Here's where the white people can swim. And a boy was just waiting. He put his foot in what was considered the white water was stoned to death. You know, a little boy playing Little League, who's the only black boy on his team, won the Little League championship. They go to the pool. He's not allowed in. He has to sit outside the fence and they bring him snacks. And eventually the lifeguard lets him go in and pushes him around to float and everybody else has to get out of the water. So there's a really dark history there. So, you know, as I'm like educating myself, I'm evolving and trying to keep myself 
just open to the fact that I have a lot of room to grow. And what's really helpful with being sort of an ally to black and brown people is to just be like, just tell me when I fuck up because you will. And it's really hard to be like, there's nothing more annoying than like a woke white woman, but we can't let anything slow us down from trying to be the best ally that we can. And so as I'm learning, I'm evolving and trying to be honest about it. And my standup has gotten more conversational. I'm just, I don't know. I love that answer because I think a lot of people might have gone to a place of very like, well, you know, when I was younger, I would embellish, I don't know, I've never been a stand-up or be a little more self-reflective about their specifics. Right. I love it that you talk about sort of a more socially expansive idea. Yeah, mine's more about other people and like the human condition. I mean, of course, like being a wife and a mother is like gonna affect your evolution also, but I'm really trying to stay tuned into like what's going on. In your special, it feels like it really reminds you of why you love stand-up. And you must have had those times where you're exhausted. You don't want to do it, perhaps. Yeah. I'm not sure. To me, the idea of being a stand-up, the traveling, the dizziness of hotel rooms. Yeah. And the different temperatures of audiences. Or maybe even like, you know, in seeing your friends on the road. I can't even imagine the exhaustion level and the loneliness. It's real. It's very real. Can you think of a night that stands out that really reminds you of, I don't know, when you walked off stage and you're like, fuck, I love doing this? Or is it every night? Well, you know, I've only done stand-up once <laughs> since the pandemic hit. I did a show outside with John Forte, who I love, who has a beautiful album called Rhythm Drive on Spotify. We did a show and it was such a treat, but I've always been happy to go on stage. I mean, not before. I'm behind my period. I'm, I'm in the, but like actually, the more annoyed you are, you have to go on stage. Those sets are probably the best. Really? Why? Just because you've had it and you don't care about anything and you just go up and you're like kind of in a bad mood and you're just like, Ugh! and like the audience can feel you just not caring and being kind of mad and just winds up being so fun. I don't know. But I've never regretted going on stage. So I'm always happy that I did it. And there are so many nights where I've just been like, God, that was amazing. And there, there have just been so many magical nights here in New York, down at the Comedy Cellar. There was this one night where none of us knew each other was coming. Like, I may have known that Seinfeld was going down there or Chris Rock. I don't know. But so it was like, I happened to be there. Rock, Chappelle, Seinfeld. I can't remember who else, but it was like this crazy night where we just all happened to be there. And it was like this show and none of us were scheduled to go on. And the audience was like, okay, first coming up, Jerry Seinfeld. And everyone's like, oh, and then it was like me. And then it was like Rock and Chappelle. And they were just like, oh, you know, <laughs> like it was like a, I don't know, $15 show or something like that. Like a two drink minimum. We all went out to eat after and like stayed out late and drank. And it was just magical. What happens when you forget the thread of what I was thinking on stage? Yeah. Well, I've just learned to be very honest. So I would just probably say, I have no idea what I'm talking about right now. And I kind of usually pull the audience. I'm like, does anyone know what I was just saying? <laughs> and then someone's like, you were talking about your vagina. And I'm like, oh, okay, thank you. I mean, when you're younger, you try to keep it moving and, you know, and the audience, you know, it, when you see a comedian and you're like, oh, we don't really trust you versus when someone goes up and you feel like, okay, like held, like they know what they're doing. This is going to be fun. They can relax. But yeah, I mean, everybody still bombs. It keeps you honest. You know, like with anything you're working on, just to have like an off day, it makes you like appreciate when it goes well. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I want to talk a little bit about your relationship with Chris. I can really relate in expecting Amy when you were hesitant to have Chris with you before the show. Yeah. Oh, you did? Interesting. Oh, completely. Because I think the people that are closest to you, you care about their opinion so much. And you feel their nerves. You absorb their anxiety for you because they love you. Yeah. And you want to take care of them. And you're like not just worried about yourself. Yeah. And I also really love how you speak about your relationship in general. And I wanted to ask you about early courtship with Chris. Yeah. Fun. So you guys met through your assistant? Yeah. His sister was my assistant. Yeah. Molly. Yeah. She was my assistant. Were you the aggressor with Chris? I obviously don't know him, but in the special, yeah, he is so wonderful. He <laughs> seems very honest and kind. He is. And loving. Yeah. And not manipulative at all. Like, no, not at all. Not nothing. Nothing like that. That's me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Did that confuse you at first? Yeah, well, a couple things confused me about him, but our courtship, I'll tell you exactly how it went down. It was really fun. So I was at Martha's Vineyard with my family, which I have been going there since I was like 18. I went with like an abusive boyfriend when I was like 18 and fell in love with that island. It's kind of the antithesis of the Hamptons in that there's nowhere to go. There's nothing to dress up for. No one wears makeup. There's no scene. You know, it's like very, very relaxed. Also, you will 100% most likely get Lyme disease if you go. But we needed a chef. You know, my family, we were like, Molly was like, my brother's a chef. And I'd heard he was a great chef. And I was like, great. So he came over and he was cooking. And I, I remember walking in the kitchen, seeing him for the first time. And you know, when you're around like just your family where you just like couldn't look more like shit, you know, like, <laughs> and everyone's saying to you like, you look tired. I just couldn't have looked worse. And so what I do when I'm like attracted to someone is... I just rebel against that and am so insecure that I'm like, hi, I have to go poop because I've had diarrhea today. Just I take myself out of the running. You know what I mean? Yes. So I did that. I took myself out of the running and I just like left the room. I was like, huh. And then I got to know him and I just thought he was so cute and that he's a chef on Martha's Vineyard and he's a beautiful guy and dressed cool. And I was just like, this guy must have women just clawing at him. So I just kind of dismissed him in that way and just became friends with him and totally platonic. And then he was in New York this one week and I was like, oh, my best friend's birthday, her 40th. Will you cook? And he was like, yeah. And it was at my place. It's almost like we were throwing a party together and I was like handling the drinks and food and it just, it felt really natural and good. And we'd had a phone call. Sorry, this is like the longest, most boring no, story. No, no, <laughs> no. I can follow up questions. Okay, okay. <laughs> I had texted him like the night before something. I asked Molly for his number because I was like, I think I'm interested in your brother. Like, would you be okay with that? And she was like, okay. And she just thought we were going to like hook up. So I called him right away. He had no idea why I was calling. And he just said, do you think this is a good idea? And I'm like, 
I didn't even say anything yet. He's like, yeah, but I'm assuming you're calling because we obviously have a connection. Do you think it's a good idea? And I was like, no, probably not. You're right. Like, okay, bye. See you tomorrow. And then we were doing this party together. And then that night he came up behind me and he kissed my neck. I was holding like a bone to give the dog. (laughs) You know, I was like walking to my room to give the dog a bone. And I'm like holding this bone and we like kissed. He kissed your neck before you guys kissed. Yeah. That is so intimate and romantic. It was a very rare moment. And then we watched some Arrested Development episodes because we both liked it. He read me some like a shouts and murmurs that he thought was really funny. And we just laughed at the same stuff. And it was like, oh, this is really easy and this feels really good. And then we had sex immediately. Usually I, in the past, if I like slept with someone, I wouldn't want to sleep in the same room as them. I'd be like, okay, cool. And then your room is right there. But with Chris, neither of us wanted to leave each other. And then just from then on, we just wanted to be together. And it was pretty easy. I mean, stuff with him having ASD can make it a little challenging to communicate at times. But we've been like just solid partners so far. My impression is that you have this unmanipulative, very devotional relationship that's amazing to see. And it made me reflect on my relationship because I'm engaged to a man. He's right there. But his love for me is different than I've experienced It's very whole. I know what you mean. It feels pure, without agenda. Yep. And that was something that took me a while to adjust to because I think I had been an immature partner in previous relationships. Mm, Yeah, I do know because it's easy. I mean, I'm projecting, but like it just made me laugh at all my previous relationships. I just read Cassie David's book, which is so funny. It's called Nobody Asked for This. She's in her 20s and just like those relationships where you're just much younger and you're just like, I hope he texts me and I'll text at like 1 a.m. Like, come over, you know, or something. And you're like, okay, I'm dating this guy. And he says he's not ready for me to meet his mom yet. But like maybe by New Year, you know, just all these allowances when you're younger. And then you're like, get the fuck out of here. Like, I'm tired. But we just didn't have that. Like, we were both just like ready to rock. (laughs) There has been relief in getting older. Hell yeah. And maybe it's because our brains are melting slowly. So death is easier. Good. Hurry it up. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that one of the benefits for me is that I think I used to be a much more jealous, competitive person without even re... Well, no, I realized it, I think. But those are terrible feelings. Oh, that sucks. That's the worst feeling. That's the worst feeling. That chemical feeling is just so bad. Yeah. I don't have that anymore. And I'm so grateful. I know. Because what a toxic thing to do to yourself. Yeah. And I also think I was more competitive in relationships too. Uh Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, I was with two actors. And of course, in our industry, you can't help but compare successes and failures. And yeah, no one's above that. No one's beyond that. I would like to be, Amy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I didn't do well with dating people in the same industry. I mean, like that to me is like the dream, you know, it's like, oh, to date a comic or whatever. But I didn't have success with that. And I feel like for me, I wouldn't want to be in a relationship with a performer. What's your identity with motherhood? I'm only a year and a half in. What I'm trying to do, and I love that question, is I realized early in a way where unexpectedly I was like, oh, he's already like his own dude. Like he's his own person. And I'm just here to support his growth, you know? And so just really trying to make sure that it's not about me and that I'm focused in on him. And I'm just trying to navigate it. Like we can communicate now. 
a little bit, you know, and he knows some signs and he has some words. So it's like, he'll start to get really upset. And I go, well, do you want to take your wagon into the living room? And he, yeah, you know, (laughs) it's like, he just wants to communicate. And so it's like early stages of just figuring out how to do it. And like, okay, we're home. We're going to wash our hands. Oh, can you climb up your own stairs and wash your hands? Like, and then celebrating that. Look at Gene, he's washing his hands like a big boy, you know seeing what's working and what doesn't, but it's just trying to not take myself too seriously while we navigate it. And Chris and I mess up so bad that we just support each other. Like if he falls or something while he was kind of on Chris's watch or in Chris's jurisdiction, it's my job to be like comfort Chris, because if I do something, you feel so bad that you need your partner to be like, it's okay. Like shake it off, you know, (laughs) cause he's fine and he bounces back. But it's like the terror of them being hurt is like, trying to have fun and really appreciate it and be present. Completely. One of the irksome things of being pregnant is the societal pressure of like, don't eat salami. Oh, right, right, right. The watchfulness over your body, which is now a fucking vessel. It's disgusting. They weaponize our bodies against us. Yeah. You mentioned breastfeeding and I pumped for three months. Jack, because he was early, he didn't take to my nipple at all. Yeah. The old latch word. Yeah. The latch. Yeah. Gene never latched. Yeah. And, you know, it was like in the hospital and we tried and they would have different people come in and it was really upsetting. It was really upsetting that he wouldn't latch. And I felt like a failure, but I, my milk came in and I pumped and he drank the bottles and it was fine. And then I think I only pumped for like a month and a half, two months. I'm like reading and I'm like, God, the formula is fine. Yeah. And I just took that pressure off myself because I did feel that way. Oh God. When I finally did it, I was freedom. Yeah. You know, you get sent home with like the Enfamil or whatever, and it would just be haunting me in the cupboard because my nipples were like chapped (laughs) and bloody. Yeah. I was just spending all day sanitizing tubes and shit like that. Oh, yeah. It's a whole thing. And you're already dealing with like the depletion of hormones. Sorry, am I bringing you back, Amy? No, I like it. I like it. It was kind of a beautiful time. You know, it was like I couldn't hack it for that long. And like once I realized I didn't have to, it was so freeing. And while I was, you know, kind of weaning off of breastfeeding, it was just really exciting because I felt like, you know, you haven't had your own body for a really long time. So it was exciting to me. I felt really empowered. And also the breastfeeding thing, it's like everyone's like, do your own thing, listen to yourself, whatever. But you do feel this pressure, like everyone's telling you to breastfeed. And so once I realized like, hey, no one's watching, like no one cares. This is about your family and what's best for you guys. And so we gave Jean formula, you know, Similac. And then somebody recommended Holly. Have you heard of that one? Mm -mm. I think you have to order it from like Sweden or I don't know, something like that. But he did really well with that. But that breastfeeding time, all the contraptions and cleaning it, it was like a little bit fun at times, but mostly... Mostly you feel like a cow. You have to milk yourself. I actually, you know, I was about to say that I think I felt like I failed my son, but I actually didn't really feel that guilty. Good. (laughs) Maybe I should have. No, I don't know where it came from. It was something I created. I just have friends who breastfeed for a long time and they're really into it. And, you know, they didn't put pressure on me, but you just by osmosis can feel that. That's why I shared it. I'm like, breastfeed if you want. Have a C-section if you want. Do you. (laughs) Okay, Amy, I'm going to ask you some general questions and a couple of deal breakers. Okay. What intimidates you? (sighs) That's a great question. I got to interview Isabel Wilkerson on Audible. That was really intimidating. I mean, I'm intimidated by our circumstances of living in a white supremacy, meaning, you know, when you talk to really well-informed people of color, 
you got to get your white guilt out of the way and just be there to help. And that can be really intimidating. I think that's an amazing answer. Okay, cool. I agree with you. (laughs) I'm like, does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Oh, completely. What is a trait you dislike in others? I like authenticity. So whatever the opposite of that is, like curation. But you know what I mean? Like just, yes, just people not being honest. That's like a major trigger for me. I like to talk about what's really going on. And that's something that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, I think. What's a trait you dislike in yourself? Well, actually, right now I would say I'm addicted to my phone. I watched that doc on Netflix, The Social Dilemma, which is so good. And it talks about how our phones are like basically like slot machines that are programmed to get us addicted. Because when we look, it's like a slot machine and they want you to look longer. That's why now you can like double click a text and heart. They're looking for any little ways to make us engage more with our phones. And so even though I know that I'm still like completely hooked and I'm not proud of that. (laughs) I'm really not proud. I think that's a great answer. What's your favorite rainy day movie? Ooh, like it's raining out, like you cozy up. Yeah. And watch. Well, right now we're watching a lot of Gene Lake's Baby Bum and Trash Truck. So those are the shows that we're (laughs) mostly watching on like a rainy day. But ooh, if I could just settle in this movie, Jesus is Son. I love. It's old. It's with Billy Crudup and Jack Black's in it. Jesus is Son? It's called Jesus is Son. It's based on a Dennis Johnson novel. Is it a comedy? It is. It has nothing to do with Jesus. All right. No, Jesus is Son. It's a really fun movie. I think you'd really like it. All right. I'm putting it down. I love all these recommendations. Okay, good. What's a skill that you would like to acquire? Unrealistically, I'd love to be able to play an instrument. Yeah. Which one? I don't know, like the piano. (laughs) I guess I could like learn how to play the piano, but I just wish I already knew. I bought a cello back in April. (laughs) They're so big. (laughs) I thought it would be sexy, Amy. Wait, that's making me cry laugh. That's really funny. I don't even (laughs) laugh anymore. I just go straight to crying. You buying a cello is so funny. They're so big and they're so not sexy. No, I know what you mean. Like in movies, like you see like a woman, like, uh, and you're like, yeah, totally. Uh, the passion, the sexuality. But I played the cello. I played the cello until fourth grade. Really? Mrs. Greenwald, my cello teacher was like, she told my mom, we don't think Amy should continue with the cello. <laughs> And I was really into it. She's like, we just think we've taken it as far. And that happened to me in college, too. I kept taking dance classes, like, with dance majors just because you were allowed to sign up. And they were like, please stop signing up for, like, tap three because it's dance majors and you're taking the spot of something. And I was like, okay. Yeah, I guess I wish I could play an instrument. (laughs) Okay, Amy, what does home mean to you? Home is Chris and Jean. And... Every night we give him a bath and then we started this thing. I don't know how we started it. You know, everybody has like their routine, but we started this thing where after his bath, you know, I give him some milk in bed, just like a little formula for his bed. And we read books and we just kind of hang out in bed for like a half hour before he goes to sleep. And he's just like, let us continue that. I mean, we've done it for like a year. And so that little half hour every night with the three of us in bed or because Tatiana comes She's so jealous of him. That's home to me. Just like that is our uninterrupted, like just hang out and talk about the day kind of time. I love that. Okay. If you could live anywhere in the world for a year, where would it be? Anywhere other than New York. I don't know because my instinct is to have it be somewhere I haven't been yet, but a year with a baby, (laughs) I get really practical. Chris and I had this amazing trip to Spain before I got pregnant that I feel like chilled my body out and rejuvenated us in a way where I could get pregnant. 
Did you guys like drive around? What did you do? I have driven around Spain. That was amazing. But we just, we were in Ibiza, but not like the party part. And we stayed there for a whole month. Oh, amazing. Did you just like rent a place and had your little grocery store? Yeah, we kind of set up shop there and we're living our lives there. And like, we loved it so much. We were just supposed to be there for a week and we stayed for a month. We just loved like the people and the vibe. We never went out. We had friends come. Like I had all my high school girlfriends come and like a moment's notice them and their families. They all came. They all hung there. And some of them went out and like went into like Ibiza, you know, came home at like 7 a.m. And I'm like, I've never done that. You know, I've never done ecstasy or anything. Well, mushrooms, of course. And marijuana is a staple. But uh, what was the question? No, just kidding. (laughs) I want to feel like I can talk about my drug experiences, but I feel like I can't do that yet. I know. I also want to do the same. Like, I want to really advocate for edibles and <laughs> and marijuana and motherhood. But, you know, we also want to continue working. And I know, you know, and then there's the judgment. Right. But there will come a time where we'll be able to be open. Will you come back on the podcast? <laughs> I'll come back on the podcast and we'll be like, this is the day we're really talking about yeah. what works. Yeah. <laughs> I look forward to that. On what occasion do you lie when somebody asks you if you've ever done ecstasy? <laughs> <laughs> Only on podcasts talking about my drug use. When do I lie? I mean, I lie every day, like all day. About what? When I ask this question to guests, most people say like, you know, they'll say like, oh, well, you know, I'm at a place where I don't really lie or they'll lie to avoid hurting someone's feelings. But nobody has said that they lie every day, Amy. All day, every day. (laughs) No question. I lie every day. Are you serious? Like I let me think about today. I mean, I lied just to mess with Chris today. I think that I make better smoothies than him and he made a smoothie. I mean, is this the whitest argument? But when I was like, I don't like this. Like, it's just kind of, uh, sorry. That's just like a little joke that we have. But even like, so our nanny had off for three days. Okay. And it was really nice. And Chris and I, we were fine. You know, it was like, we appreciate her. And I mean, I am so grateful for her name's Jane. She has taught me so much about being a mother, everything. But we were fine. And so I said to Chris, I said, make sure we both say, thank God you're back. And that's a lie, but that's like for a good reason, you know? Yeah. Feels like rude to be like, actually, we were great. (laughs) Bye. You know? (laughs) Yeah. But it's more smoothing things over. I mean, I've had to learn how to lie because I'm very impulsive and honest. So are you a good like poker player? I am a good poker player. I believe that actually. I really do. Are you a good poker player? I'm not. I only enjoy things that I'm good at, which really limits my life. (laughs) No, that's how Chris is too. He wants to be like the best at something. He loves competing, but he wants to be the best. I don't like competing, but I can't help myself. I am a competitive person. I think because I grew up so short, I was a really short kid. Oh, really? Yeah. It was kind of my identity. And I had a lot of dental work, Amy. Oh, God. Okay. See, that's why you're so funny and talented. Because you had a hard moment. Yeah. Oh, my God. Nobody wanted to sleep with me. Thank God for that character building. Oh, my God. What if we had had, like, good, easy, smooth? That's what I'm worried about Gene. Like, you know, we're nurturing him so much. We almost named him Genital. So he's got some obstacles coming his way. I kind of wish you had stuck with that. I know. I thought about it. No, I thought about it. I was like, am I going to boy name Sue him? And then I'm just like, no. Like, he's going to already hate us for a million other reasons. I don't want him to hate me for this. Is that Gene? Hi, you want to come over here? You want to come say hi? Hi. Okay, that's, and that was that. Hi, Gene. Isn't it odd when journalists are like, so what is Gene up to these days? (laughs) 
He's mostly doing pottery and <laughs> reading Nietzsche. Yeah. We're learning how to, you know, get him to let us change his diaper without screaming. <laughs> Most newborns are, um, you know, by nature, not very attractive. True. When Jean was born, Michael and I were like, fuck, that's a beautiful baby. Oh, really? Like as a newborn? Yes. Oh, good. He was perfect. He was so beautiful. I just thought that, but <laughs> he came out, he was ready to be a model. He came out for the runway. He was like this well-baked loaf of bread, like just plump and gorgeous, like nothing misshapen and odd <laughs> about him. Just incredible. He has natural contour. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, just that moment. I love how you talk about how you and Chris locked eyes. Oh. The most intense moment of your life. Oh, beyond. Yeah. It's actually indescribable, I think. It is. Before you have a baby, when people find out you're pregnant and they look at you and they go like, you know, and you're like, why is everyone so weird about baby? You know, but then when you have a baby now, when I find out a friend's pregnant, I'm like, oh, you know, you understand. You understand why people like look at you and they know how magical. And the sharing of stories, like I totally understand it now. Yeah. In fact, I grew up, I have a big older brother and I'm really close with him now, mm -hmm. but we grew up fighting a lot. And I was also very resentful that I was a girl. Yeah, as you should be. I know. I felt that <laughs> from a very young age. Same here. Same here. My brother had a Marine poster, like a recruitment poster for the Marines that, you know, was like only a few good men. I fucking hated that shit so much. When I went to my 20th high school reunion. Do you recommend that? I mean, mine's come and gone. Yeah, I sort of got roped into it through my brother. Anyway, I didn't remember anybody. It's really, you know, awkward to look down at somebody's name tag when you're like six inches away from them. Mm -hmm. But what was nice is that it was confirming. A couple people said, oh, yeah, I remember you as a really quiet, shy person. Yeah. And that was nice to hear because that's how I remembered myself. So it was a confirmation of that. That's nice. How do you think people would have remembered you? What kind of activities were you involved in? What was your high school mascot? <laughs> okay, our high school mascot was truly awful. We were the Cyclones. I think that's kind of rad. But then we were the Lady Cyclones, which kind of sounds like a vague term for your period. I don't know. Yeah, the Lady Cyclones. I don't know. Maybe you're right. It could have been worse, but it still felt like, okay. You know, and like you couldn't really have like a physical mascot. Yeah, that's true. I played volleyball. I was very serious about volleyball. Played club ball, was like on varsity as a freshman, captain junior and senior year, not a big deal. But uh, I couldn't do the plays because I was so into volleyball. I was funny. I was voted class clown and teacher's worst nightmare. And then my sister, the year I graduated, because she's four years younger. So she was a freshman as soon as I left. And I was just like, oh, you have that teacher? You know, and I just thought they were going to be like, oh, you're Amy's sister. I'm like, tell me you're my sister, you know, and she's like, I don't want to tell them that I'm your sister because this teacher was scared of you. This person that you thought, you know, like she reminded me of a 30 Rock. There was an episode of 30 Rock where Tina went to her reunion and people were like, you were a bully. I bullied the bullies. That's amazing. <laughs> Wait, that makes me sound like I'm trying to be a hero. But seriously, I would get myself in trouble because I would go hard after the bullies. And it did lead to me being like chased and people would try and beat me up. How did you develop that strength? I don't know. I just had it. And my dad would say stuff to us. Like he taught my sister and I how to play poker when we were really little. And if we like tried to cheat or something, he'd be like, if this were a real game, you would be shot in the face right now. <laughs> you know, you like, and he was like, you know, in the mob, family's the most important thing. My Jewish side, like fled the Holocaust, came from Austria. They were tailors on the Lower East Side and they were community organizers. They're trying to unionize. And so it's like, I have this lineage of like people fighting for justice and on both sides, like just kind of like 
people in leadership roles and artists and just a long line of psychotic, hardworking <laughs> organizers. I wanted to ask you about stand-up again, if you don't mind. No. What I didn't tell you earlier is that I had no intention of going into comedy ever. <laughs> and I think the reason why I landed in it is probably because my face betrays me. My facial expressions are much larger than I intend for them to be. Right. Which apparently is funny. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Amy Poehler said she has that too. Like she came out on stage as like Juliet or something and everyone was just dying laughing. And you have that too. It's a rare thing where you come on screen or on stage, whatever, and people just like love you. Thank you, Amy. And that's something that you can't learn and you can't teach. And it's kind of out of your hands. I have a really hard time going on talk shows. And the way the podcast has been a relief for me because it's an element where I can control my own narrative. Mm -hmm. But in general, I'm much more comfortable, you know, playing a character. I think this also probably links back to my issues with not having as many female friends. It's all because that bitch wrote on your locker. <laughs> I love you, Amy. Where is she now? Where is she? I love you. I want to know. That's the show I want to make. Bullies, where are they now? My brother is a professor at UC Davis and his whole research is based on bullying, which to me is fucking insane because, man, he bullied the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, you're like, really? This is your uh, life? Yeah. Your life's work? That's really funny. <laughs> so the solitude in terms of creative was stand-up and then acting with other actors. You do an amazing job handling both abilities, can you help me like sort of fill in the blanks with this idea <laughs> <laughs> of stand up versus acting? Can you ask yourself this question? <laughs> I'm trying to yes. ask you. Take a take a nap. I'd like to pose this question to myself. Amy, this is actually a two part question. Yeah. <laughs> so this sort of like road to the connection between stand up and performing. Well, what's interesting is actually who before they say something says like this is interesting. Like, listen, this is interesting. <laughs> it's probably not. But when I was starting stand up, I was also taking this two-year Meisner course with William Esper in New York. He died last year, but the William Esper Studios where I studied. And yeah, two-year Meisner intensive. So I was doing that while I was starting stand-up. And the Meisner technique is very much about putting all of your attention on the other person and leaving yourself alone is part of it, you know, and living truthfully under imaginary circumstances. So I remember I was going in to apply for a new bartending job. And I went and I asked the bartender, is the manager here? And he was like a little bit rude. And I said, did I say something to upset you? And he said, are you taking a Meisner course? That's so fucking specific. <laughs> I know. New York, you know, it was just like, oh, God, did not get that job. But, you know, it just translates to everything is what I'm saying. Like even in your relationships, just because it's so much about your attention on the other person. So with stand up, I was probably a little more tuned into the crowd than I would have been if I weren't going through that training then. Stand-up is such a solitary thing, but I do think it's a little bit like delivering a monologue or like a speech, you know, in a movie where you need to be the most effective. The stand-up I prefer is when it kind of seems like you're working something out in the moment rather than I wrote these jokes and now I'm saying them. I think being present just brings another level of enjoyment. That's why, you know, there's a misconception that stand-up is off the cuff. And some people think like, maybe I'm good at stand-up. That's not how it works. It's like you with the cello. It's like, you're not just like, maybe I'm amazing at the, you have to learn. But, you know, living in the moment is good for both, I would say. I want to ask you on what occasions do you get nervous? But I also want to ask you when you're on stage, do you prefer to be blinded by lights or do you prefer <laughs> to see? Do you care? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I want to see a little bit. Like the first four rows? The first like four rows. Yeah. If I come out and have time to do like the sound check, you know, in general, I'm like, I'd love to be able to see the first four rows because that blinding light, that kind of messes with me. And stage fright. The only time I've gotten nervous in so long was right before I interviewed Isabel Wilkerson about cast. Other than that, I'm pretty rarely nervous. I get nervous for like, you know, if I were flying, if I wanted to ask the flight attendant for a drink or something, I would get nervous because I just really don't like annoying people, you know? (laughs) So I'm like, okay, how can I ask this in a way that's not annoying? Yeah, but I don't get nervous for things that I probably should. I feel like a low-grade nervous energy fairly frequently. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of on the reg. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I don't know. I drink decaf coffee, so maybe that. Oh, shit. That's probably what I should do. That is something that, like, makes everybody sick to their stomach. If I order a decaf, like, everyone, like, in the room is just like, like, why? You know? (laughs) And I'm like, just please let me live my life. Have you developed any oddities or have things come out during this quarantining experience that you're like, huh, that's an odd part of my personality I didn't realize? I mean, we didn't do anything ever at all. We haven't left the house after like 5.30 for like nine months. So I was really good with that. Something that surprised me is that it has not been hard to not do stand up. The only thing I'm really missing is the people that I would see all the time. No sort of oddities Wait, Amy, I bet you have oddities. I know, I know, I must. Well, Chris and I got very into boogie boarding this summer and we were making videos of ourselves boogie boarding. Like we took on joke personas, people who are really into boogie boarding, like kind of talk about it, like it's surfing. And so Chris and I got into a little bit of a weird area. Amazing. And I like gained so much weight at the beginning of COVID. Like, So we have these videos where I'm just like a total just pumpkin just hurling myself in the ocean on this board. I have to text you some videos. They're really funny. I would love that. Okay. What is a real fear and what's an irrational fear of yours? A real fear I have is right now COVID. Yeah. (laughs) I'm in New York. I am scared of COVID. I'm very scared of it too. And I feel like I'm more nervous than other people around me, which makes me feel insane. I know. Somebody else goes to me. They said yesterday, they go, did you know that now you're supposed to wear a mask even when you're inside if you're not at home? And I'm like, yeah, bitch. Like, of course. Haven't you been doing that? And she was like, um, yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay. An irrational fear. I just like really try to stay on top of things. So Like this past week, like I thought my appendix hurt. So I went to the doctor and she's like, no, you know, you're completely fine. So I'm just afraid. I just want to be the person who did something immediately so that I'm not like, oh, I should have gone to the doctor when I had that first thing. Irrational health fears. Do you have a joke you can tell our dear listeners? Okay, so Michael K. Williams, Mm -hmm. Omar from The Wire, he was like, asked me to do this thing this summer. He was entertaining New York City kids. Like, so they still had a program where they could hang out, even though COVID was happening. And he asked me to come on, whatever. And then one of the kids asked me to tell a joke. And I really couldn't think of one. Like, I couldn't think of one joke. So the one I thought of that everyone while I was pregnant was telling me how good prenatal yoga was for the baby. So I immediately signed up for a (laughs) C-section. So that's the joke. But I said it and like... (gasps) These kids are like 14, you know, (laughs) so they all start trashing me. They all start trashing me. I think they had more fun that I bombed. And I also told them this long winded, like stupid old, like kind of dad joke. And they were asking questions like, "Okay, so what was going through your mind when you decided to just tell us that joke? (laughs) Like like they just trashed me and I I just absolutely (laughs) had it coming. Amy, can I ask you a super quick deal breaker? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, a very popular beer company is putting out a line of beer just for women. They want you to be the face of the national campaign for, let's say, $12 million. However, they want you to say the catchphrase cooked up by their ad agency, women, sometimes we want to be one of the boys. Yeah. Are you down with it? Do you do it? For $12 million? Yeah, for $12 million. Yep. Okay, and how would you say it? Women, sometimes we just want to be one of the boys. That's fucking good. One of the boys. <laughs> I wanted to give you notes, but I can't. On my sketch show, we did a scene called Trick Who Can Hang. You know, that kind of play on when guys are like, I just want a girl who can like crack a beer open with her teeth and like build a deck. You know, you're like, you just want a guy. Then you just want a guy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Amy, the last question. How would you like to be remembered? As an activist who fought really hard for equality, for racial equality. Amy, thank you for being so brave, truly, for your activism. You. Yeah, I know that it's in your position. It exposes you to a lot of vitriol <laughs> and it is a tough, scary place, I imagine at times. And it's incredibly admirable. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm excited for the beginning of our friendship. Me too. I'm so excited, Amy. I've been dreaming of being your friend for a long time. As I have mm-hmm. of you. Thanks for having me on. Amy, I love you. Thank you so much. I love you. Please give my love mm-hmm. to Chris and Jean. I will. My love to Jack. I will. Love to fiance. <laughs> All right. Bye, queen. Bye. Much love. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey everyone, I'm excited to welcome back Dr. Alex Katahakis. You can learn more about Dr. Alex and our other experts on our website, unqualified.com. Hi, Dr. Alex. Thanks so much for doing this. Hi, Anna. Thank you for having me. All right, let's call Brian. Hello? Hi, Brian. Hi, Anna. How are you? <laughs> I'm, uh, to be honest, a little nervous, but uh, excited to be on here and chatting with you guys. And I really appreciate the help. If it's any consolation, I always get anxious. Brian, I am here with Dr. Alex Katahakis. She is a psychotherapist. She's a leader in the field of integrative sex therapy. She's the clinical director of the Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles and the author of some brilliant books, which we can give you information on. Yeah, so she's definitely more qualified. I was just telling Dr. Alex that I'm just like the ding dong that chimes in with my own (laughs) vulnerabilities in these scenarios. (laughs) But Brian, will you tell us what's happening? So me and my wife have been together for about 10 years. We've been married for about five. Uh, We were sort of high school sweethearts, you could say. I I went on a date with her once in high school and (laughs) didn't call her back until our 10-year high school reunion. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, we've just, we have three kids. And when I met her at our 10-year reunion, she had a three-year-old little girl and a uh, wonderful little girl. And 
we've had two since then, a little girl and a little boy, and they're just uh, little maniacs and awesome. I love that. It's a lot of work to do, but I think I take a lot of pride in, in being a dad and being a husband. And I believe we have a pretty good relationship with uh, communication and, and whatnot. I guess I should preface saying I, I love my wife with every beat of my heart and I do anything for her and I do anything for my children. And, you know, you do your best to be a good parent. And, you know, sometimes, you know, the other things kind of go off to the side when it comes to your children. I think, well, after our first, like the, the little girl that number two, whenever she came, things started to kind of slowly kind of back off in the, in the sex department, I guess a little bit. And I was, you know, understanding about that. And that's the last thing I want to do is put any pressure on sex. It's wonderful when it's unpressured. You know, over time, you know, it's been five years now and it's just slowly dwindled. And we've had discussions about it. She's just not very into that, I guess, at the moment or any kind of physical touch at all. You know, she's still very sweet and understanding about it. I just want to be understanding about her, but at the same time, and I've read a lot of the books about, you know, love languages and trying to keep that part of your life full. And, and I know what mine is and I know hers isn't physical touch or anything like that. I just want to feel fulfilled in that aspect of our relationship without having to force sex or have it to be put on a calendar. You know, like that sounds like the worst thing in the world to be like, all right, it's Friday. Is it time to have sex now? Right. I want it to be passionate and spontaneous in some regards in that I love my wife more than my own life is concerned. I want her to be to feel like she's connecting to me too. You are in great hands, Brian, with Dr. Alex. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brian, hi. Um, I'm Alex Katahakis, and you sound like a really kind and open-hearted man, so I'm happy to meet you. And how old are you, and how old's your wife? Uh, we're both 38. We're actually, funny thing, and this is totally not on topic, mm-hmm. but we were born within five days of each other in the same hospital on the same floor. Wow. It's random. Like she was born a week earlier than me. And I think her parents were leaving the hospital the day I was born. You were arriving. Yeah. Well, so you can't sort of came yeah. in together. Well, you know, it's interesting because 38 for most women is a sexual prime, that that's the time when women are most sexually interested, active. And I understand that she's got a small brood here that is, might be exhausting for her too. You know, oftentimes oh, when women yeah. have children grabbing at them 24-7, the last thing they want is a partner grabbing at them. And having said that, you know, part of being in a committed relationship is having a sexual connection, which gives people a positive emotional connection so they can endure the child rearing and all the stressors of being householders. I really want to understand more what she says about why she doesn't want sex now. You know, I I don't know that she's given me a, like a straight, I don't like to have sex. And it's probably stress-based, like you said. I mean, those kids are wonderful, but they're very engaging. Mm -hmm. And today when I was on my lunch break for work, I mean, I I work in our bedroom because of COVID and I'm able to come out and and help out with chores if if I can and um, help out with them. And they're very clingy to her, especially today. Goodness. They were crawling all over. And I I bet you're right. It's some of that. Yes. So when does she actually get a break from them? When does she get to feel sexy and like a woman and not just like a nursemaid 
or a babysitter. So how does that look in your lives? And I know it's really difficult now. I mean, it's like almost like you wouldn't want a babysitter in your house. Well, as of about a couple of years ago, I'm extremely active myself being in uh, the field I am and I'm always exercising and always out there. And I've, you know, as of the time we met, I'd always felt a little guilty or at least wanted her to have something, some kind of hobby or skill or something she can get crazy passionate about. And I don't necessarily have to be there to do it. I want her to feel that. And so I'd always be kind of encouraging in that regards to hey, go out with your girlfriends, find something, find a, you know, try this activity, try biking, try running. In the past or a year or so, she goes out every Saturday and actually most mornings she'll go out and run with a girlfriend. And I, I wanted to have that time. And I thought that was it. You know, maybe if I give her more time with her friends, more time out, she'd feel uh, more able or more willing or just more comfortable, less stressed. Mm -hmm. And then the rest would flow naturally. And you know, it's been great for her. She, um, she's lost all the baby weight, which makes her feel very proud. Um, that's not me. That's coming from her. She yeah. wants to do all that. And we try to have, you know, date night, like, well, before COVID, it was every Thursday. Now it's usually once a month if we can manage it. Uh, and there's no obligation for sexuality. It's just, let's, I want to spend a night with my wife and right. connect with her and try to have conversation. And, you know, maybe if something comes from that, great. So she hasn't really told you why she doesn't want to be sexual. In your email, you write, After the last child, my wife admits she has little to no sex drive. I've gone through stages of my life where I have felt like I have not had a sex drive for various reasons, and it really bothers me. And it won't be until, like, I'm actually like reluctantly making out or in bed when I'm like, all right, let's do this. Then like after I get into the flow, then I'm totally into it. Well, no, that's not true now as I get older. <laughs> now things, I'm, I feel pretty active. Dr. Alex, I don't know if this is what Brian's wife maybe experiences. And I, I of course, I'm simplifying it. There is just the exhaustion level of like, after you put the kids to bed, you want to crawl into bed and shut off your brain with some stupid program and, like, be immobile. Well, one of the things you're pointing to, those are two different things, is that the female sex drive or arousal cycle is very different than the male. So for many, many females, desire follows arousal, and that's what you're talking about. I don't really feel like it. I'm going to do it anyway or take one for the team. I'm not really that into it. But once you start to connect with your partner physically, like you said, making out, being touched, touching, then the body starts to get aroused and then you have desire for your partner. And that's inverse of the typical, and we're talking about, of course, heterosexual dyads here. The heterosexual male is very different than the female is. So when your wife says that she doesn't have a sex drive, that's always dubious to me because drive is not a reason to have sex. I mean, sure, when you're 18, 20, you know, 25, 30, if you have a drive, great. But what happens as we age and we've been married longer and we have children, if sex isn't about a drive, then what's it about? And that's my curiosity is why doesn't she want to connect with you in a physical way when that is the most um, connecting thing that two people can do to keep their relationship feeling good, actually, and to stoke, you know, the secure functioning of a relationship. 
and you're not someone who's pressuring her. You're not being inappropriate in any way. You're just saying, hi, I'm here. Like, what's going on with our marriage, our relationship with each other? And so I think you have to have more conversation with her first. Otherwise, we're just guessing here. Certainly, she's exhausted with three children, but she is in her sexual prime. And even if she doesn't have a drive, what about pleasure? I mean, pleasure is an extraordinary way to reduce stress. You know, what you were saying really connected with me. I think it sounded like what's going on. You know, she'll feel, I guess, uh, for lack of a better word, horny or aroused maybe once every other month or so. And it's pretty obvious. Like, so she does have it. Right, of course. It's just never kind of coming up. I think, you know, something I was thinking about when uh, I found out that I was actually going to have to talk to somebody on a podcast (laughs) was, uh, (laughs) so I travel very little for work, but when I do, it's usually pretty exotic places or so. Um, I was in Hawaii for a couple weeks um, last October. October or it was before, not last October, but it was before COVID. I was out working for about a week and a half and I just said, come on out. Let's get you out here. You've, you've never been to Hawaii. I've been a couple times and granted it's for work and it is, I am not on the beach when I'm there. Let's, let's just put it that way. It is hard. But after that, she came out, we, we had a great time and it was like she was a teenager again. <laughs> I couldn't keep up with her. Mm-hmm. It's like, I know it's there. And I know it can be brought out in certain circumstances. Those are different things also, because more people have more sex on vacation because we're relaxed. You know, when you're home, there's so many responsibilities and it's stressful and stress is antithetical to relaxation and sexual arousal. And so on vacation, there's no responsibility. She doesn't have to be a parent or a grown up. Um, she gets to play. And so, of course, her body is relaxed in the water and in the sun. But how do we integrate our sexuality with being householders and parents and day-to-day living is the question. And it requires a real effort. And there's something in here about intimacy and deep connection that may or may not lead to intercourse. You know, what happens that she doesn't say, yeah, I really want to make time with you just to connect. And maybe it is that you have a night together um, and you end up giving each other massages or laying in each other's arms or feeling what it feels like just to breathe together and making some kind of physical contact uh, that maybe leads to sexual arousal and maybe doesn't. But these are matters of intimacy that can lead to quite incredible eroticism Uh, which is different than I'm on vacation and I'm super relaxed and we'll have sex every day. It's not even about intercourse necessarily. And something I've learned to change in myself a little bit um, to kind of accommodate that is that it really in my head isn't about intercourse. It's about arousing my wife. You move differently when you're aroused. Right. The way that she moves, the way that she breathes, the way that she is, the way that she comes to me, that's what I want. That's what I'm attracted to. That's what I'm trying to save. I'm I would love to have intercourse, but that's not the point, you know, yeah. it, it really, and that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that is so key for me. It's Well, I think it's key for many men. I mean, that's what pornography is about. Men get off on porn because the women in porn, no matter what's being done to them, look like they love it. You know, no one wants to have sex with a dead fish. So you're saying that her pleasure is arousing to you. Right. And it can be just that. Yeah. Right. So have you ever told her that? Oh, absolutely. 
I mean, I'll come out, you know, and say like, I'd love to sit down and give you a massage and just have it be all about you. And mm-hmm. it's usually 70, 30, like she'll say, I'm a little tired, maybe not tonight, maybe tomorrow. And the other time she'll go, okay, you know, and it's kind of a little obligatory. And then once things get, you know, kind of into motion, it's like you said, it's, it can be changed when she's turned on or when it gets a little physical, but I feel so super guilty if, if I'm trying to oblige her to start that process. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. But in, I feel like this is common, right, Dr. Mm-hmm. Alex? Like, yeah. of course, like to use this as a stereotypical example, I suppose, that men feel guilty for putting any kind of pressure onto their partner. And of course, it doesn't feel good. Brian, I've also been in, in a, a couple relationships um, where I wanted to have sex more than the guy that I was with. And as a woman, that was pretty devastating <laughs> because, like, we're not socialized in that way. And so it was a blow to my ego. Dr. Alex, would you recommend—I'm sort of addressing this on a maybe a surface level. If Brian ordered toys, is that also an avenue that would be really fun for them to take? I don't think so because it's not consensual per se. What's missing here is that— I don't know your partner at all, your wife, and this is a tricky thing to say, but my perception is there's some kind of self-deception going on here, that she's not really being honest about what's going on for her sexually, what turns her on, what she likes, why she's avoiding your advances. She's not being transparent, and it may be that she's not being honest with herself, because she's just beleaguered and tired and it's like, oh, you just want to have sex again. And, and I'm very also cautious about this notion about people putting pressure on each other. You don't have to take that, quote, pressure on. So, Brian, if you're saying, you know, I want to have sex with you, I'm aroused by you, I desire you, this is important to me. If she feels pressured by that, that's not really your doing. That's built in and inherent in the system of marriage. The system puts pressure on us. The individuals aren't putting pressure, you know, unless somebody is really over the line, but that's not what we're talking about right now. So for you to silence yourself is not a good idea because you're going to have resentments about that. You know, breaking out all the sex books and the sex toys is going to be annoying to her. I think what has to happen is a really, you know, frank conversation. Like, let's sit down and talk about what's actually going on here. Because this is what goes on for me. This is what I'm thinking about. This is what I want. But then, Dr. Alex, can Brian just also say, God damn, baby, your ass looks hot? Yeah. I don't know what she would do with that. (laughs) But yeah. I mean, Brian, what can you imagine saying that to your wife? And what would she say back to you? Well, the funny thing is, I do that. I Maybe not as as vigorously as Anna did, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but does she... Yeah, I gotta um, put a little vigor into it, Brian. Honey. Yeah. I don't know, recall any specific response. She'll do it to me, too. She'll pinch my butt and say, cute butt. You know, she'll... Like, we do flirt a little back and forth. You know, when she came out of the bathroom, like, 10 minutes before I started this call, you know, I just said, hey, beautiful, you, you look wonderful. And, you know, I just wanted to feel good, and it did. It's nothing sexual. You know, nothing went from it from there. It was just me trying to flirt with my wife. Yeah, Brian, I eat that shit up. Like, I am a sucker for that kind of stuff. For, for co- I really am for compliments that are spontaneous, you know, middle of the day, more, whatever. I love it. <laughs> and 
I think my relationship with my fiance has really benefited from, he's so sweet to me and so expressive of how sexy he thinks I am. And that means a lot to me. Maybe this is a just a small, minor idea. Dr. Alex might be nodding her head at me, Brian. <laughs> no, no, I think that's, it's a great idea. But why isn't she meeting his advances, his overtures, his flirtations in the same way, you know, he's pursuing her and she avoids him somewhat? What's actually really going on? Because once you can straighten that out and get honest about that, then there's a lot of room for that kind of sexual play, for talking to each other in raunchy ways, ordering sex toys, whatever turns both of you on so that there's a play state to it. But right now she's just calling a moratorium on sex. And I think it also sounds like she's afraid that if she touches you, you're going to read that as wanting to have sex. So she's withholding touch also. How would Brian initiate this conversation? How would he open up a conversation that wouldn't shut her down if her answer might be like, well, Brian, I'm tired. We have three kids. We're in the house all day long. You know, the laundry's never ending. What is a good way to approach this kind of conversation? Well, that's kind of tricky because of all the sort of ins and outs of that. I mean, Brian, is that how she would respond? I'm like, did you have a, have a key to my house today? Oh, okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's like, yeah, the laundry's never done. The, you know, who's going to make dinner tonight? And the kids are crazy. And the house we put an offer on didn't get accepted. And mm. just all this, like, it's you know, all these things. Is it as simple as that? I mean, I don't think it could be, but. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. But it's also about making time in the midst of that hectic life once a week to say, hey, let's go for a walk. Let's hold hands while we walk. Let's talk about and say to her, you know, I really miss you. And I see how overwhelmed you are by doing all the time and how exhausted you are. And I miss my lover. I miss my partner. What can we do to not completely marginalize our sexual connection with each other? What would help her make a space to receive pleasure from you? Because she's giving all the time. I like the idea of opening the conversation. My poor fiance, Michael, is sitting right over here and I'm talking about him as though he's not. <laughs> but every night he will like pet and massage my back as I fall to sleep. And more often than not, yeah, we have a really nice time. The petting <laughs> leads to exactly what we both want, even when I'm tired. And he's a very physical person, which I love. Because I'm like you, Brian, I really like, I like physical touch a lot. And it tends to lead in my relationship to a lot of sex. <laughs> so, oh, good Lord. I'm sorry, mom and dad. <laughs> but I wouldn't want Brian to be, um, I don't know, rejected. You know, he might be rejected. But I think when we give because we want to, not because we expect something in return, if somebody rejects us, we can be disappointed, but so what? You know, we're disappointed every day of the week about something or another. And you're, when you're an adult, you sort of lick your wounds and you move on. So I don't know. Again, I don't know her. You do, Brian. Would she respond to touch, a foot massage, a shoulder massage before she goes to sleep at night just because you want to make contact with her? I think so. 
All right. I don't think she would be would shy, would shy away from that. She's very kind, and mm-hmm. I guess we're pretty typical people, but she would respond, I think, uh, kindly with that. And just don't know if necessarily it would you know go anywhere. But then it's not it's not necessarily about that. Well, right. You don't know. And I think that's honest point. She's saying for her, she's exhausted and she's out ready to go to sleep. Right. But there, that back massage rub is, becomes an invitation and her body responds to it. And so, and I, I think that's again about in that moment, you have a choice. You can say, no, I'm just going to roll over and go to sleep. Or I want to make this physical connection with my partner. This is for the good of the whole. This creates this positive connection between the two of us. And, you know, the marriage matters to me. So even though I'm really tired, I'm going to have sex anyway, and I'm, I'll be glad afterwards. And going back to the idea of compliments, the more specific, the better. It, you know, it might make her think about those things, whether it's her eyes or legs, and then she might feel sexier. Oh, I don't know, Dr. Alex, am I a ding-dong? <laughs> I think I'm right. You're yes, I think you are right that it's not a generality. It's something specific to her. And for everyone it will be different. So we can't say that every single thing that you respond to, all women respond to. I guess you're right, Dr. But, but Brian knows his wife better than we do, so he would know what she will and won't um respond to. Yeah, I get that. She has beautiful eyes. Like, if you saw her, that would be the first thing that stuck out to you. It's what stuck out to me in 10th grade when I saw her in English class for the first time. (laughs) Yeah, she's gorgeous eyes and wonderful legs. And some of the things I like, she doesn't like. Like, I don't think she likes her feet very much, but I I do. I've always liked her tummy, her stomach, um, baby in it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Those are kind of her maybe sore subjects, I guess you could say. And maybe like when you guys are watching television or whatever, rubber feet. I think you guys are on to something when you talk about like physical touch without the overt agenda. I think that would make her feel, yeah, like you're not after something from her, but you are. And I believe you'll get it. (laughs) (laughs) Is it okay to preface with that to say, you know, hey, this is not, you know, not in these words specifically, but this is not an obligatory thing for sex. This is just me wanting to contact you. I mean, is that a yes? I think that ruin the mood. No, I think before the mood, when you do have this conversation with her and saying, look, you know, I told you that my love language is touch, right? And so to say to her, you know, I noticed I stopped touching you because I'm worried you're going to feel pressured that I want sex. And that's not the case. So I'm going to stop depriving myself of touching your gorgeous legs or your belly. Um, I'm touching you because I love you and I'm attracted to you and I want to touch you. Is that okay with you? That's all you can do is let her know that you're going to take what you want, so to speak. Um, but you're giving her informed consent on the front end so that when you are laying together or sitting on the sofa and you start touching a part of your bot- her body, you're not having to ask about it. So you shouldn't have to back off or deprive yourself from what you want to need. If she's uncomfortable with it, she's got to deal with what her discomfort is. That's her work. And looking at why she avoids sex. And it's interesting, she's so stressed out, but one of the most relaxing things you can do is have an orgasm. Sleep better, feel more connected to your partner. My thoughts too. (laughs) Right. And yet she's depriving herself of that pleasure and that release. Yeah. 
And I'm an advocate for, I like lingerie and toys and especially as I get older and I'm more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Is the, I assume that's, that is common. That's why you're. Yeah. Wanting. Well, I think, I mean, I just think when women have more confidence and they're more comfortable, they're more comfortable being seen, having pleasure, right? Being seen as a sexual yeah. being, watching your partner, watch you get off. There's a maturity that's required with that, as opposed to, you know, having your eyes closed, feeling squeamish, wondering how your thighs look. I mean, just all of that, you know, anxiety that goes with younger women. Oh, my God. I was a terrible lover for decades. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was those things, you know. Yeah, right. I I was self-conscious, you know, and... And maybe, you know, Brian, too, that maybe the weight was an issue for her, you know, not feeling sexy. Yeah. Brian, I hope we helped. I don't know. I'm pretty sure I didn't. But I hope uh, Dr. Alex gave you some things to think about. Absolutely. You know, I think that I wasn't looking for a solution coming, like a 100% solution. I know this is just the beginning of a road. And it's, you know, a road that'll take the rest of our lives. And I don't, I have no intention of going anywhere other, you know, than here where my wife's at. And it's a foundation to start with, with conversation, with just being honest about, you know, what Dr. Alex said about, you know, my desires and, and just what I can work with. And, you know, it's like if all the stress were to disappear from our lives, that might cause more sex to happen. But I, I want to be in a relationship where, you know, we're fighting every day to have a better life for our families. We're fighting every day to have a better careers and to advance and to improve the life of our family and friends. And, and that's, to me, that's a life of stress and that's a good stress pushes us to get better. And I want to have that relationship while this is all going on. Exactly. Cause it's never going to stop. Yeah. So if you say to her, I miss my lover. That's what we're talking about here. There's nothing fundamentally wrong. Nobody's, you know, cheated or stolen or done anything dumb. It's that you miss your lover and your friend. You're great parents together. You're working hard. But there's something that's missing for you that you really want. And you're saying, we're not going to wait until the stress is over because then you'll be dead, essentially. (laughs) And so you're saying, let's just fold it into what we're doing. There's always going to be something going on. And we are in this dynamic, and this is probably a long conversation with Dr. Alex, about our dynamic in heterosexual relationships. But I get off on being viewed as sexy. Yeah, this is an interesting paradox, what you're talking about, because, you know, we live in this world where we are increasingly pushing forward a feminist desire for equality and right. being respected and seen as human beings and not just, you know, TNA. But at the same time, I think there are these biological directives where, you know, in the bedroom, women want to be sex objects for their men, right? You want to feel sexy and wanted and desired. And these are, I think, evolutionary I think that's what you're saying when your partner meets you with this velocity, when he's got this look in his eye of yeah. hunger and wants you. Yeah. Um, that's arousing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the thing that romance novels are made of. That's why romance novels exist. I was an English major in college and I wrote my thesis like 600 pages on romance novels. Oh my God. <laughs> it was kind of, yeah, it was, it, I don't want to get into Brian, it. Brian, that's amazing it was, though. It was, so it was you me know. trying to be impressive, but it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I got a stupid degree out of it and I know, <laughs> don't use but, it. But you're right. I mean, like, there's always a guy who's throwing some female on a bed and taking her with his throbbing right. member. Yeah. Right? Oh, Every single <laughs> book has the same chapter in it. So my point is those yeah. are there for a reason. They are arousing. They have their place, I think. Brian, I can't thank you enough, though, for being open and and talking with us I know that a lot of our listeners will find this incredibly helpful. So know that, of course, you're not alone. And I know that we're going to get a lot of response from this, Brian. And I can't thank you enough. Before we let you go, Brian, do you have any other questions for Dr. Alex? If I had a question, it would be if, you know, if I go and talk to my wife, you know, in the next few days, I have that conversation and we just don't know where to go next. Mm-hmm. What what should be our next steps of who to consult or who to talk to? Or? Well, maybe you want to find a sex therapist that you can talk to, a qualified therapist. And everybody's on Zoom right now, so it's super easy to make appointments with people. And, you know, if she's not comfortable talking with you and you feel like you can't get any resolution, then maybe it's helpful if there's a third party there. She's very receptive and she'll talk to me about anything. I mean, we're best friends it's not like we're avoiding each other or anything and we're always near each other and always around each other and yeah we talk pretty openly i think sometimes she thinks i'm a little hard to read or distant but what you know every man has a nothing box or whatever i call it you know it's a room he goes to in his head where it's just nothing in there (laughs) (laughs) and sometimes that can be a little distracting but you know for her or unreadable but i think for Mm -hmm. the most part she's uh she's very open and very accepting and I don't want her to come off through this, you know, podcast as anything awful. She's the most wonderful person in the world and she's sexy and beautiful. And Oh, Brian, you seem like you have a wonderful marriage and family. Well, I mean, (laughs) we fight like everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) Brian, how about this? How about if you do have follow-up questions, I would love to hear from you. You know, maybe Dr. Alex will be available to talk again or we can help uh, with some other resources, too. I appreciate that. Yeah, that sounds good. And uh, Dr. Alex's contact info is also on our website. Oh, great. Okay. Just in case there's a, you know, a question that the follow-up specifically to this conversation and, yeah, maybe just not wanting to necessarily open up to another stranger. Sure. <laughs> I mean, that's fine. You could certainly, yeah, send me an email, which is on the website. I appreciate that very much. I thank you guys very much for allowing me to be here again. Like I'm not humiliated to say any of these things. I just I just want to know how to how to help my wife. Yeah. And that sounds really admirable to me. And like Anna, I think it sounds like you've got a wonderful marriage and part of having a wonderful marriage is arguing and bickering and being a human being. Hey Brian, thank you again and let's please be in touch. Absolutely. Thank you very much. All right. Have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Thanks, Brian. Bye-bye. Bye, Dr. Alex. Thank you again. You're amazing. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. (laughs) 